Hello, this is the Journal of American History podcast for spring 2018. My name is Benjamin Irvin. I'm the executive editor of the Journal of American History, and I will be your host for today's episode. Our guest today, Thomas A. Guglielmo, is an associate professor of American studies at George Washington University. His first book, White on Arrival, Italians, Race, Color, and Power in Chicago, 1890-1945, was published by Oxford in 2003. It won the Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians and the Alan Nevins Prize from the Society of American Historians. His essay, A Martial Freedom Movement, Black GI's Political Struggles During World War II, appears in the March 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Tom, numerous books and articles have been written about the civil rights movement. And the notion that World War II was a sort of watershed moment in the advancement of African-American civil rights has seeped into our general historical awareness. But you point out that relatively few historians have studied rights activism or anti-racist protests in the military during World War II. Why do you think that is? There is a disconnect, I think, between, on the one hand, military history, and on the other hand, civil rights movement histories. And so civil rights activism that took place within the military during the war is often kind of fallen in between these two really significant historiographies. So that's that would be my first answer. But, you know, the second answer is that there are scholars who have been really interested in both of these topics, that is, black soldiers and black civil rights. And even those folks have at times missed this story, surprisingly. Folks who you'd think would, would know this story and, and, and highlight the story didn't. And so that kind of leads to a kind of a question about, well, why is that? And I think part of it has to do with the fact that you really have to read the military sources and just any sources about soldiers, but particularly military sources against the grain, because so often what I am describing as activism was not described in these military materials and records as activism. It was often called disturbances. These were things that were seen as kind of pathological problems on the part of black soldiers, not activist efforts that had everything to do with the kind of racist conditions in which black soldiers were forced to serve. So the great contribution of your piece is that you shift into the military and explore the ways in which resistance to Jim Crow bubbled up from below. Is that correct? Yes. Yep, absolutely. I've been deeply inspired by, you know, social movement and civil rights movement historiography, and particularly the turn toward social histories of of movement activism. And this article about black service member activism during the war is just a small piece of a much larger project about the U.S. military during World War II and how it was this kind of really important but often forgotten site of race-making, and also social movement-making during World War II. Let's dive into your article a bit. The United States war with Japan and Germany erupted during an era of Jim Crow. Throughout the nation, public accommodations and facilities remained rigidly segregated. But what about in the Army? How were African Americans treated there? 
So I think one thing that's important to recognize at the outset is that the military did provide African-Americans during World War II with some real opportunities, you know, opportunities to earn an honest wage and to get an education, to have adequate housing and health care and these sorts of things. So it was a place that many African-Americans wanted into. At the same time, it was a place of pervasive racial discrimination and segregation. So there was discrimination in terms of their access to the military. There was segregation within the military in terms of units. Uh, There was all kinds of discrimination in terms of the sorts of jobs that African-Americans could get in the military, their rank segregation in terms of housing and recreation. There was discrimination in terms of who won medals and who did not, who got discharged and when they did access to the GI Bill after the war. So there was extensive discrimination in the military against African-Americans. Well, what's fascinating about that answer, Tom, you've sketched a scenario in which some African-Americans look to the Army as a place of economic opportunity, certainly as an opportunity to serve, but upon arrival that they discovered it was an institution that itself, despite some of its ambitions, was nevertheless a place that was still heavily segregated. It's easy to imagine how that would have been particularly disappointing or disillusioning. How did African-American soldiers respond to the conditions they found in the Army? Well, they've responded in a whole whole host of ways, right? Some folks just recognize that the military was a deeply authoritarian institution for all troops, not just for African-American troops. And so no matter how disillusioned they were, as you said, with the rampant discrimination they faced in the military, they decided that they were simply not going to do anything about it because it was just too dangerous. And then, of course, there were certain people that I'm sure housing and education and solid wage was, you know, appealing enough that they were going to just kind of keep their head down and not protest anything. But what's really striking to me, especially given the real constraints on activism within the military, given the authoritarian nature of the military, given the fact that really any form of protest was deemed illegal in the military and could lead to all kinds of very severe punishment. Despite all of these really serious obstacles to activism, there was nonetheless extensive, pervasive activism across the military across the World War II years. Now, this extensive and pervasive activism, you characterize by the phrase martial freedom movement. What do you mean by martial freedom movement? So I mean a movement in the sense that it's conscious and concerted and a sustained set of efforts by ordinary people to change their lives and to change at least some portion of society. So that's what I mean by movement. In some ways, I saw this as a civil rights movement, but I thought civil rights, to call it a civil rights movement, was to restrict the meaning of this struggle uh, more than I wished, right? So if I had focused on civil rights, it would have meant citizenship rights entirely, when in fact I think what these soldiers were attempting to do was often related to citizenship rights, the right to serve in the military without racial discrimination, for example, but it was broader than that. It had to do with human rights. It had to do with dignity and being accepted as a full-fledged human being. And so I chose the title Freedom Movement along the lines of a lot of current scholarship on black activism. The martial piece of it, I'm calling it a martial freedom movement because of a few things. One, the main actors, the main organizers, main mobilizers, the main participants in this 
movement were service members, were GIs, primarily men. 96% of black GIs during the war were men, and so the vast majority of these activists were men, but there were a significant number of women, perhaps a disproportionate number of women involved in this story. That's a really interesting piece. But nonetheless, Marshall in terms of the key actors, Marshall in terms of the fact that this movement emerged out of the military and, and in certain cases in spite of the military and its, again, authoritarian nature. It was Marshall in terms of its combative protest tactics, and the tactics were varied, and not all were combative or militant or really confrontational, but some were, say, in the form of mutinies and strikes and armed resistance and that sort of thing. So I say Marshall for that reason as well. And then finally, it was Marshall in the sense of who these activists were targeting exactly. So they were interested, they were appalled by uh, a broad range of forms of white supremacy during the war, but they were first and foremost service members during the war engaged with activism primarily in opposition to racism within the military. And so they were, it was martial in terms of its primary target as well. You contrasted in some ways the martial freedom movement with the broader civil rights movement. When I think about the broader civil rights movement, one of its distinguishing attributes, perhaps one of the key elements of its success, was the fact that it was organized. Organized by the NAACP, by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, among others. Was the martial freedom movement organized in a similar way? The Marshall Freedom Movement was not organized in any sort of national or regional sense, right, in large part because the military stamped down so severely on activists. But nonetheless, I think that the most interesting and important civil rights scholarship of the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe even a little bit longer, has suggested that even the civil rights movement was first and foremost a constellation of local struggles and that there wasn't actually a ton of coordination always between a movement in some small town in Alabama and another one in Texas and another one in Tennessee and another one in North Carolina, that at times there could be coordination, but a lot of times these were indigenous struggles very much rooted in the particulars of place. And again, the military, the martial freedom movement that I'm describing had a similar kind of quality. It was very much focused on particular struggles that were rooted in specific to particular units and the experience of those units wherever they might have been located, whether it was in the South, U.S. South, or North or West, or North Africa, or Asia, or Europe, or what have you. Tom, I'd like to circle back to a point you made a moment ago about the way that the Army or the armed forces more generally responded to this martial freedom movement. I think from our perspective as historians in 2018, it's easy to look back on the struggles of black GIs and to think of it as activism. But from the perspective of the military in 1944, it more often than not appeared as insubordination. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So what were some of the ways that the army attempted to suppress the martial freedom movement? The black units teamed with undercover agents who were constantly informing military authorities about what was happening within these units. If they did, in fact, discover that something was happening that they deemed to be illegal, they could court-martial people, they could move them around, out of units, out of the country, in fact. They could demote people. There were a whole range of tools available to the military that they often used 
quite energetically to stifle any bit of activism that they possibly could. But there's something very particular about the military, despite all of its hindrances to activism, despite the ways in which it made activism an incredibly dangerous thing to do. It fomented activism in a way that was, of course, unintended, but unmistakable, I think. You know, the military brought a whole range of African-Americans together, right? So folks from all over the country, different regions, different class backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different kind of levels of political consciousness, but brought them together and gave them this opportunity to kind of learn from each other, to plot and to plan if, if that's what they decided they needed to do. And then finally, I think, again, on this broader question about what was it about the military in particular that could politicize folks and drive them to protest. Most obviously, the real cross evidence over and over again of black soldiers saying, you know, if you're asking me to give my life, I'm going to give my life for a democratic freedom struggle here in the United States or a struggle that's going to free my people before I'm going to give my life to free some other people across the planet. Tom, there are so many brilliant strands within that answer. One of the ones that really continues to spark my imagination is the implication you make about space in the Army, physical spaces, the ways in which the military created some basic structural opportunities for them to voice their discontent. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ironies in this story, and that's one of them, for sure, right? That one of the main reasons that the military insists on segregated units throughout World War II is that this is the way to kind of keep the racial peace, that white soldiers, they assume, the military assumes that white soldiers will not tolerate under any circumstance mixed units, and so they're going to keep these units segregated in order to keep the racial peace between whites and blacks. Of course, it has the opposite effect because it allows African-Americans, it not just gives them something to organize around, but it gives them the opportunity to organize. Tom, could you give us an example, a specific example or an episode that stands out to you as representative of the kinds of acts of protest or rights activism that constituted the martial freedom movement? Sure. Let me just give you a sense first just of the breadth, because again, I think this is the piece that'll be surprising to a lot of people. And then I'll give you a couple of specific examples that I think are especially interesting. So black GIs during World War II, in order to protest the rampant discrimination and segregation they faced, they destroyed property. You know, if they entered a tavern or a cafe or a post exchange on a base or a theater and they faced discrimination or segregation, in certain instances, they destroyed destroyed the place. The summer of 1944, a young Sidney Poitier, who is serving on Long Island at the time, he and a group of his fellow black soldiers enter a tavern on Long Island and are told to get out because there are no blacks are served there, except they didn't say blacks, they used the N-word. And these black soldiers were so incensed by the racism. And again, keep in mind that these are folks who are now in the U.S. military wearing American army uniforms, have devoted themselves to sacrificing perhaps their lives for the nation, and they're being denied this very basic right to a public accommodation in the North, by the way. 
and they just destroy the place. So that's just one example. Protest is property destruction. There was armed self-defense. So African-Americans in certain cases armed themselves. They kind of broke into supply rooms and grabbed guns and armed themselves and sometimes shot up army bases and Navy bases to oftentimes to defend themselves, to respond to violence that had been directed against them. So those are two forms, but there are so many others. So there were, of course, many African-American GIs that excelled as GIs, that they understood that one ideological foundation for the racism they faced within the military was the idea that they should face discrimination because they were kind of lesser soldiers. They would never be the equal of white soldiers. And so many African-Americans decided to respond to this kind of discrimination of lower expectations by excelling and saying, you think we're worse than white soldiers. You think we can never be their equal, but we'll prove to you we are um, great soldiers and we will serve this nation honorably. There was foot dragging and what was called at the time gold bricking. Scholars call this infrapolitics, but basically these were these kind of subtle and intentionally subtle forms of activism in which people would not do their job quite as efficiently as they were asked. They'd slow down, and they'd get to work a little bit late, that kind of stuff, just as a kind of a weapon of the week is what uh, James Scott, the political scientist, called it. Letter writing. Soldiers wrote all kinds of letters to political leaders, to military leaders, to family members, to black newspapers, detailing the discrimination they face in an attempt to kind of rally the civilian population around their demands and their activism. Some black troops escaped the military. They just decided they had enough of military Jim Crow and decided to just go AWOL absent without leave. And this was a widespread problem within the military. Not just African-Americans were doing this, but African-Americans had added incentive to sometimes escape sit-ins, both individuals would kind of just decide they were going to defy an order that said a cafe was only for whites. But it, they were collective, too. There were instances where hundreds of black soldiers would occupy the white section of a movie theater on an army post and refuse to leave. There were boycotts. Again, individuals refusing to use segregated space, but again, collective boycott. One of my favorite examples here is of hundreds of soldiers in Cherbourg, France. And the military, and this was very common overseas, the military would decide that a certain civilian pub was going to be for whites and a certain civilian pub was going to be for blacks. And black soldiers in Cherbourg in 1944 were so incensed, they just decided they were going to refuse to patronize this bar until these bars were desegregated segregated in France. There were work stoppages. There was the refusal, again, on the part often of collective groups, large collective groups, the refusal to work until their complaints or their protests were listened to or respected or responded to in some adequate way. I'll give you an example of a strike I think is incredibly memorable. Over a thousand members of a naval construction battalion, so Seabees, who were at Port Huanimi, which is in Southern California. This was a group of naval construction battalion members who had served for nearly two years overseas and now were back in the United States. And they had long been promised that they would be promoted, that they had all this battle experience overseas in the Pacific, had risked their lives, had been told over and over again by their commanding officer that they would be promoted and that they never were. So they decided to stage a two-day hunger strike. So what you see in this martial freedom movement is the widest range of activist tactics and that extended all across the world, all across the United States, all across the world, and extended all across the World War II years as well.
Tom, you alluded earlier to the role that women played in this martial freedom movement. Could you expand on that? Sure. Yeah, this is a really interesting piece of the story. I mentioned that black women were only 4% of black service members during World War II, and yet there are a number of what, what I came across were many, many instances of black women engaging in these boycotts, engaging in these sit-ins, engaging in this martial freedom movement. And in a way, even though they were a real minority of black GIs, they do seem to be, given that I found so many instances of black women involved in this activism, they do seem to be disproportionately involved in this movement. I'll give you one example. It's about a group of about 60 or so black women medical technicians who are at Fort Devens in western Massachusetts. This is in early 1945. And they're supposed to be trained as these medical technicians who are going to do all this very technical work in the hospital there at at Fort Devens in Massachusetts. But instead, their commanding officer tells them, you know, you're black women and you know you really should be scrubbing floors and cleaning this place, not uh, doing anything more specialized or skilled. And the women are just so outraged by this that they refuse to work. That's a magnificent example. It reminds me of a rather provocative argument that you've made in your essay that for many African Americans serving in the armed forces, the campaign against racism in the military and in the United States was perhaps more important than the campaign against fascism abroad. Can you tell us a little bit about this distinction when you draw between the double V campaign and the single V campaign? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, one of these arguments that was a little bit of a surprise to me. I wasn't expecting to make it. The double V conceptual frame is just so powerful. And that idea is that black soldiers during World War II fought two wars, not just one. They fought one war against fascism overseas, and they fought a second war against racism in the United States. This was a campaign that was made famous by the Pittsburgh Courier, an important black newspaper during World War II. But it's a campaign that has been made perhaps even more famous by scholars of blacks during World War II, because this really is the dominant way that scholars understand black politics and activism during World War II, this idea that they were equally devoted to the battle against fascism overseas and the battle against racism in the United States. I didn't expect to find this and it took me a little while to understand what I was seeing. But what I saw over and over again was black soldiers essentially saying, we're not as concerned about that battle overseas. We're much, much more concerned with the battle here at home against racism in the military and also to some extent outside the military, that it was a single V campaign, that given the levels of racism that these black service members had to face, they decided that that racism, the one close to home, the one that was bedeviling them left and right, bedeviling their their family members left and right in the United States, all across the United States, not just in the South, but in the North and West as well, that it was that struggle that required their full-fledged attention, much more so than the one going on overseas against the Axis powers. That's an astonishing discovery, Tom, and and one that perhaps may shock some readers and listeners as well. And yet the evidence is there in your article that there are African-American servicemen and women who specifically state if the army will not recognize my human and civil rights, then it is not important for me to die in this cause abroad. Is that correct? Yeah, and I do want to stress, of course, that there are over a million African Americans who served in the U.S. military during the war. Of that million-plus people, there were hundreds and thousands of people who devoted their lives 
to protecting the United States and to fighting overseas and to beating the Axis. So there's no question that for large numbers of African Americans, the double V makes sense. So I, I don't mean to suggest that that has no validity at all. But what I am suggesting is that there was for another large of course, I can't quantify any more precisely than that. But there was also a significant number of black soldiers who were just so incensed, so appalled by the racism that they and their family members were facing on a daily basis, both in the military and outside of it, that they just decided that their sole priority, if they were going to fight fascism, they were going to fight American fascism, not fascism overseas. One of the remarkable developments for this martial freedom movement comes back to the letter-writing campaign you alluded to earlier. Letter-writing is really one important means of communication, without a doubt. And I think black newspapers also played a really important role in kind of educating people outside the military about what was happening inside the military. And so what you see developing over time is that the martial freedom movement, even though it was primarily a campaign peopled by GIs themselves, service members themselves within the military, they could not have done what they did without extensive networks of allies outside of the military. Black newspapers championed their cause. Civil rights organizations, especially the NAACP, championed their cause. Family members championed their cause. One of the interesting stories that I like is that black women, mothers of soldiers, were some of the most prominent allies of this martial freedom movement. These alliance networks were extensive and really, really important. There was no organization that was more important to helping the Marshall Freedom Movement than the NAACP. One conservative estimate towards the end of the war within the NAACP was that they had 30,000 members within the military. So there's a lot of overlap between the NAACP, an ostensibly civilian civil rights organization, and this Marshall Freedom Movement, an ostensibly military campaign. Nonetheless, there are all kinds of links between this movement and the NAACP. The NAACP, if you look at their records, I mean, they literally have dozens and dozens and dozens of boxes devoted to what I think is called soldier trouble. If you actually look at the finding aid, they call it soldier trouble. But essentially what that was, was in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, what that soldier trouble involved was black GIs defying military authorities and protesting against the discrimination they faced. And what you also find in those records is, again, the NAACP doing everything they can to serve those soldiers, to help those soldiers to represent them formally in, say, court-martial hearings, hearings regarding their discharges, but also try to gather as much evidence as they could or information as they could about what was happening within the military, and they would fight it in the court of public opinion, so they would write articles in the crisis, their monthly publication, they would send information to the black press to publish stories, they would lobby military leaders and political leaders, so they have are constantly in contact with the civilian leadership of the Army and the Navy throughout the war. They're constantly in contact with Roosevelt throughout the war about discrimination that soldiers are telling them about in the military. But at the same time, interestingly, this NAACP is constantly telling these soldiers, leave activism to us. Your role, your 
sole responsibility at this point is to fight for the United States and to be as great a soldier as you possibly can be. Leave the battle for citizenship to us. So what's interesting about this set of alliances that forms between what I'm calling the martial freedom movement and these civilian groups, what's really interesting is that in certain cases, the martial freedom movement defied not simply military authorities, but defied black civil rights organizations as well, which again, many of which were constantly telling these soldiers, don't rise up, don't protest, leave that to us. We'll do that. We're working on that ourselves. And so, yes, it's very interesting that the Marshall Freedom Movement depended on civilian institutions and organizations to some extent, but they also defied them. Why do you think it was that the NAACP was urging soldiers to fight and not to protest? You know, it's interesting. I should kind of qualify that because I think on the one hand, publicly, they were subscribing to what I call in the article a politics of soldierly respectability, right? So publicly, they were wanting to appear to support the war effort entirely. They didn't want to appear seditious. They didn't want to appear to be aiding and abetting certain actions that black GIs were taking in the military that the military authorities deemed to be seditious, to be insubordinate, to be disturbing and problematic. So in a lot of ways, they had to publicly make clear that they were a opposed to this kind of activism. So I think that explains in a lot of ways their, to some extent, it explains their politics of soldierly respectability. But what I also argue is behind the scenes, the NAACP is supporting these activists. So what did the Marshall Freedom Movement accomplish? Or to ask the question a different way, where did things stand at the end of the war? What's the epilogue to the story if there is one? I think the Marshall Freedom Movement had a broad or a wide range of consequences. So at the local level, oftentimes black activism faced either indifference or persecution, right? That's really important to, to recognize. But on occasion, discriminatory orders were lifted, punishments were lifted, discriminatory leaders were removed from their posts. So there were occasions when this activism absolutely had an effect at the local level. At the national level, the Marshall Freedom Movement pushed civilian activists to champion their cause. So keep in mind that there are a lot of civil rights activists during the war are working on a number of different fronts, right? I mean, they're trying to get equal opportunity, economic opportunities, both in unions and in the workplace. They're trying to desegregate schools. They're trying to gain the right to vote in the South. I mean, there are all kinds of different civil rights campaigns happening, and only one of them has to do with the military. So they're, they're busy right? And so it required, in certain cases, black GIs to tell their civilian allies outside the military that, yes, you've got your hands on a bunch of different activist struggles right now, but you need to keep your eye on our struggle as well. So that's another way in which this martial freedom movement had an impact. Within the military, the military, generally speaking, refused to concede much to these activists, but on occasion, they did, in fact, make some important concessions. So, for example, you'll note that a good chunk of the Marshall Freedom Movement was devoted to segregation within or on military posts, so post exchanges and post theaters and officers clubs and that sort of thing. And in late 1944, the Army issued an order that appeared, it's kind of complicated, but it appeared to outlaw segregation in a lot of these recreational spaces on posts. And so that was an example of the military conceding, making certain concessions to this martial freedom movement. 
I think more broadly than that, but sticking with the military, I mean, I think you can't understand desegregation of the military after the war without some understanding of this broad sweeping martial freedom movement during World War II. There are a bunch of factors that must be taken into account to understand why the military desegregates, especially in the 50s. But I do think that this martial freedom movement played some role because ultimately what you see happening with military leaders is they come to recognize, especially by the end of the war, that segregation is deeply, deeply inefficient, that it made their lives more complicated during the war, created all kinds of headaches. And those headaches involve this martial freedom movement. I do think you can kind of connect the martial freedom movement and the eventual desegregation of the armed forces in the immediate post-World War II years. The final consequence of the martial freedom movement that I think is really important is that you can, in some sense, if it's true that you can't fully understand the desegregation of the military without taking the martial freedom movement seriously, I think it's also true that you can't understand the rise of what some scholars call the classic black civil rights movement, that is the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, the Montgomery bus boycott, the sit-ins, the freedom rides, Birmingham, and all that. You can't understand the rise of that movement, I think, or any of the black freedom struggles in the North and West in the post-war years without some real reckoning with, real understanding of this martial freedom movement. Because in scholarship, many, many historians have recognized that veterans, World War II veterans, were foot soldiers of these post-war freedom struggles. But what hasn't been as well understood, I think, is that these veterans had been activists before the post-war years. They had been activists during the war, not just as veterans, they had been activists as soldiers as well. And that that experience, that networking, that confidence that they built during the war, foot soldiers in the martial freedom movement, that that experience, those relationships, that confidence, that set of resources that they developed over the course of building this broad sweeping and impressive political movement during the war, all those experiences served them extraordinarily well in the post-war years and helped to lay at least one foundation for the post-war struggles in the South and beyond. Our guest today has been Thomas A. Guglielmo. His article, A Martial Freedom Movement, Black G.I.'s Political Struggles During World War II, appears in the March 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.